You are listening to a preview clip of the Media Roots Radio Freemasonic History of the United States, Part 6, titled Aryan Deities, the Liberty Cap, and the Cubicle Ashlar to Infinity. To hear the full episode, go to patreon.com slash Radio. What this book essentially did is it added a whole new philosophical meaning to Freemasonry. And even if Albert Pike plagiarized all these things and, you know, maybe even didn't deserve to make any money off of them because he plagiarized apparently a great deal of this book, even still, what he did was he reinvigorated Masonry with sort of a new philosophy. What he was trying to say in Magnum Opus is that Masonry had lost its way. And he wasn't just trying to revise the rituals to bring it back to its sort of more primitive, essential form, true Masonry, if you will. He also felt the need to inject it with new philosophy and to give it a true universality enriched by the knowledge of all these world religions. And in that sense, I think that he succeeded. This established masonry as having a richer and deeper connection to ancient history as well, without really even having to embellish or lie. Even though Albert Mackey and Albert Pike still believed that there was some connection of the Masonic rituals to even ancient Egypt in some, in some loose, very loose sense, we now know that that's completely false. But what Albert Pike did was he didn't try to really claim that very much in the book. I mean, he did sort of mention it a few times, but the main point was to connect the philosophical and spiritual elements to this ancient spirituality and to do it in a really effective way by really connecting it to some of these ancient religious texts and teachings like Hinduism and also the occult and Gnosticism. But some of these more ballsy passages, some of the more I guess, controversial passages in the book. One specifically about Lucifer that I already read would later be weaponized and taken out of context by a very famous author with the intent on demonizing Freemasonry. And not that Freemasonry doesn't deserve or warrant demonization. However, what would later become of Pike's writings by future anti-Masons made it even more difficult to properly criticize him as a figure just like bad or hyperbolic conspiracy theories today make it more difficult to actually find the real truth in the realm of deep politics or the deep state. The real truth seems to be that Pike's most important contribution, when you really boil it down, was his obsession with and his dedication to what he would repeatedly refer to as the Aryan deities. By folding in folklore and symbolism, of these so-called Aryan deities and Aryan civilizations and Aryan spirituality into Freemasonry itself. And I keep saying Aryan for a reason, and I'm going to explain later, but folding in all this Hindu Vedic spirituality in and of itself, Buddhist spirituality, is a very controversial thing to be doing for something Masonry, which was so dominated in a lot of ways by Judeo-Christian symbolism and folklore and parables. 
But morals and dogma wasn't even really pitched that way or sold this way sort of outside of a small circle of people. Scottish masonry at large didn't learn about this book as a way for Albert Pike to push the universality of all religions and teaching you the ways of the Hindu and Vedic traditions and how they connect to masonry. That wasn't the way that it was advertised. If it was advertised that way, it probably would have actually scared people. It probably would have been really controversial. But this book didn't have wide distribution at first. And it wasn't even distributed outside of the Scottish Rite until much later. So if it was controversial, it was sort of contained within the fraternity. And really, only the people on the very inside would have probably been open-minded enough at the time to understand why Albert Pike's dedication to learning Sanskrit, learning about Vedic history, learning about these Aryan civilizations was important to basically enriching masonry. See, most Americans at the time, if they heard of Hinduism or Buddhism, they would think of non-white peoples. And because since people were still so racist and xenophobic, even after the Civil War, we're talking about the 1870s, that's how most people on the outside would perceive Hinduism or Buddhism. Well, let's just stick with Hinduism. But see, Albert Mackey and Albert Pike knew something that I think the general common man didn't, which was that Hinduism, the Vedic tradition, derived from what was known as the Aryan peoples, white people, the ancient, the original white race, not the Semitic race that the Abrahamic traditions derive from. So what does this mean? Why is this important? Well, it's important because even though I said earlier that how could Albert Pike have possibly been involved with the KKK in this notorious white supremacist organization while he was in the middle of doing all these extremely important and high-level philosophical works talking about how you shouldn't be bigoted and you shouldn't have prejudice and how all men are equal. How could he even not only taking aside the time to be involved with the KKK, but how could he have held such racist thoughts after he was in the depths of writing these things? Well, there's actually more evidence that Albert Pike was in the Ku Klux Klan. The Washington Post in 1905, which you can still find a copy of online. It's actually the Washington Post, August 13th, page E4 from 1905, lists Albert Pike as chief judicial officer in its own promotional literature. The document, Knights and Women of the Ku Klux Klan, Clarero, Elmira, New York, has an illustration of Pike pictured next to Nathan Bedford Forrest. And a little bit more information about Susan Lawrence Davis's book, The Authentic History of the Ku Klux Klan, 1865-1877. In her book, 
She captions a portrait of Pike by saying, Chief Justice of the Invisible Empire, Ku Klux Klan. And the portrait was actually exclusively given to her. Susan Davis indicates that Pike's portrait was presented by Mr. Yvonne Pike, Leesburg, Virginia, son of General Pike, for this history. But back to my point about the true roots of Hinduism, the reason why it also lines up with the possibility that Albert Pike could have been involved with the KKK is that his obsession with the Rig Veda and the Aryan traditions of spirituality seem to also have to do with what he believes his own racial heritage, his whiteness, essentially. And even though this aspect of Albert Pike's obsession with the Hindu gods wasn't on display in Morals of Dogma or Magnum Opus, because keep in mind, most of the things I already read you from the lectures in Magnum Opus were just essentially reprinted in Morals and Dogma. But this connection to the Aryan heritage and the Aryan culture becomes very important to Pike, as we will learn in the next section about his next major work. A work that required the intensive study of the religion of the ancient Hindus as contained in the Rig Veda and of the religion of the ancient Persians as contained in the Zend Avista. But one interesting thing comes up again with this obsession. The Rig Veda, the most ancient religious text known to man besides the Zend Avista, have hymns to several Hindu deities in them. But the overwhelming majority of hymns in the Rig Veda are exclusively to one deity named Soma. And Soma is also a drug, which Albert Pike becomes extremely familiar with through his research. But let's talk about drugs, because secret society lending themselves automatically to being able to do things with other people that were maybe perhaps taboo in society. Things like homosexuality, things like polyamorous relationships, orgies, swinging, but also things like drugs. Many recreational drugs were still legal at this time. Morphine was very easy to get over the counter. There were already a lot of morphine addicts in the United States. The Chinese migrants had brought over opium, and that started to become popular in opium dens, but also in the form of laudanum, which you could also buy at the pharmacy. They even sold laudanum, which was a tincture of opium, in order to cure morphine addiction. Well, turns out that the primary ingredient in opium is morphine, which I guess they weren't entirely knowledgeable about at the time. But I mentioned a book on a previous episode, I believe it was episode three of this series, called Alchemically Stoned by an author named P.D. Newman, who himself is a Scottish Rite Freemason. He argues that Freemasonry has in it potentially an ancient secret, and that secret, he believes, 
is the ritualistic use of dimethyltryptamine specifically, which is one of the most powerful and most legendary psychedelic substances today. It was largely popularized by psychedelic author Terence McKenna. So for P.D. Newman to suggest something so seemingly outrageous that masonry has in it this secret, this occult secret essentially, this spiritual secret, this alchemical secret, sort of combines all three of them together, that beneath all of this is the secret usage, the secret ritualistic usage of DMT, and that perhaps even some of the symbolism in Freemasonry actually references DMT, and maybe even other ritualistic ethnogens or psychedelic drugs, including the original Soma in the Rig Veda. Soma was a drug from the Rig Veda that was worshipped or hymns dedicated to more than any other deity. It apparently immediately let you commune with this deity, that the deity itself was the drug, but when you ingested it, you commune with it. I'll just dip into a personal story really quick. Out of all the psychedelic drugs that I've tried, and believe me, I have tried pretty much all of them, DMT might be the only psychedelic drug that I've tried where it challenged my atheism. It challenged my lack of belief in a god. And I believe that there's really nothing else on this planet that you could give someone or hand someone or show someone or tell someone there is nothing else besides DMT where you can sh immediately share with another person an experience where they will be very likely to have an experience where they are immediately communing with what they believe to be a deity or a spiritual manifestation of God in some form. There is no other sacred text. There is no other religious priesthood. There is nothing else on the planet that has that ability that this chemical DMT does. So what's my point? Why am I even mentioning this in the middle of Albert Pike talking about morals and dogma? And how could a guy who maybe even dabbled in psychedelics, did Albert Pike actually dabble in psychedelics? How could he have been so racist and involved in the Ku Klux Klan? Well, we don't know. I'm just speculating a lot. Did Albert Pike ever encounter substances that were commonly found in areas of Mexico in the 1800s? Did he ever come across psilocybin mushrooms during his travels in Mexico and in the Southwest and hanging out with Native Americans? Did he ever come across peyote, which was commonly found in the Southwest and even in Mexico at the time still? He doesn't describe having these experiences in any of his own writings. But the fact that Albert Pike became so fixated on the Rig Veda specifically, I think, does beg the question. Did he also get interested in the mystery of Soma to the point where he realized that actually ingesting substances, intoxicating substances, could hold some important place in spiritual practices? Well, let me read to you what Albert Mackey actually admits in one of his writings. In his book, Encyclopedia of Freemasonry and its Kindred Sciences, he sort of confirms in passing 
it is admitted that the texts and nomenclature of medieval materials on Hermeticism were cryptic and queer. But for that, there are several explanations for the need for secrecy, including the need to keep laymen from endangering themselves with drugs they could not understand. Now, this could be interpreted several ways. Does he mean that drugs, endangering themselves with drugs that they could poison themselves with, they wouldn't understand the dosages for, the correct amounts to take? Or does, is there a deeper meaning to what Albert Mackey is saying right there that understand in the sense that they would be beyond their comprehension, that they might make you go insane? But Pike finally releases what arguably is his most original work, his most original and in-depth work, originally based on a manuscript of 6,000 pages. And who knows how long he'd been working on this, but it seems like it really built off all of his previous work, all of the previous knowledge he had accumulated throughout his life culminated into this. And the book was titled Indo-Aryan Deities and Worship as contained in the Rig Veda. At the beginning of this book, which arguably was really Pike's real magnum opus, not the revised rituals, this was wholly a work of his, arguably the most original research project he had done yet. He says on page six in the opening of the book, there is at least nothing slavish or brutal, sensual or groveling in these hymns. Nothing of the barbarian or savage. A spirit of grave thought, fullness pervades them. They are highly devotional and reverential. Of philosophy there is little, and yet the idea that there was a spirit of whom no cognition could be had in fire, a spirit intelligent, wise, and powerful, was of the same profound nature as that of the immortal soul, united with the body or of the divine soul in nature. It was not the idea of a savage or a child, but of a philosopher and metaphysician. I think these hymns are better understood, and we penetrate more deeply into the thought of the poets who compose them. We shall find ideas there of emanation and manifestation, of the principle and essence itself beyond our cognition and only attainable by the intellect, limiting itself by form, and positing itself in place, its manifestation of itself, and yet not all of its very self, which have reappeared in all the great philosophies of the world and been essential in all the great religions. Now, Pike obviously prefaces this with trying to get someone to shed their prejudices about essentially a religion that comes from India, because people's understanding of India was of that of barbarism at the time of a completely uncivilized society. But what Pike tries to emphasize that this is not the Indians that most Americans would think of at the time as Indians. These were the Aryans, the white race. Now here's what Pike says. He says, The Vita is certainly the second oldest book in the world, and it contains the religious hymns of our ancestors, for we, of whatever mixture of European blood, are wholly of the Aryan race. Germans, Gauls, Franks, Latins, Saxons, Celts, Scalves, all are of one blood and family, and the English and all other European languages, 
and the Sanskrit, Zend, and Persian are but varieties of one and the same original language, produced by intermixtures with various others. We are by nature Aryan, Indo-European, not Semitic. There is no mixture of Semitic and the European languages. The indigenous people whom the Aryans conquered and with whom they mixed were of a race or races totally different from the Semites. Our spiritual kith and kin are to be found in India, Persia, Sclavonia, Greece, Italy, and Germany, not in Mesopotamia, Egypt, or Palestine. No literary relic carries us back to so childlike a state in the history of man as the Veda. The exodus from Egypt, according to the approved chronology, occurred 1,640 years before Christ. The Vedas were compiled 1,400 years before Christ, when the language in which the hymns were written had become a dead language, and kingdoms had been founded and grown gray with age, since they were sung in the country of the five rivers. The book of Genesis records the ancient traditions of the Semitic race, and makes known to us the ancient thought, the ancient feelings, joys, hopes, and fears of those who were the ancestors of the Chaldeans, Phoenicians, and Hebrews, an Arab race. The Vedas bring us face-to-face with our ancestors, and their tents and pastures adoring the fire, the light, and the luminaries of heaven. Nowhere else is there a sign, a jest, or a glimpse of the old Asiatic humanity. Pike also clearly admits, Nothing has ever so much interested me as this endeavor to penetrate into the Adita of the ancient Aryan thought, to discover what things, principles, or phenomena our remote ancestors worshipped as gods. I do not apply these words to races of men like the lowest Africans, Australians, and American Indians, but to the great races whose history is the history of civilization. Pike says the Aryan race was never a race of barbarians. Now at this point, I feel it's important to mention the connection between later period fascism, not just in the United States, but in Nazi Germany, and their usage of the swastika from Hinduism. So hopefully after listening to some of this, you can understand why that iconography was later adopted by white sort of Aryan mythology fascists. But it needs to be emphasized here that Albert Pike wasn't just bringing in new spiritual underpinnings in folklore to flesh out the connective tissue of Masonic lore. He was also injecting Freemasonry post-Civil War with new underpinnings of white supremacy and white destiny. And regardless of how Masonic scholars try to whitewash his legacy today, it is undeniable that Pike's appreciation for Hinduism had something to do with his views on race. In fact, it had a lot to do with that. Hi. You were just listening to a 25-minute clip from a four-and-a-half-hour podcast episode called The Freemasonic History of the United States 
Part 6 Subtitled Aryan Deities, the Liberty Cap, and the Cubicle Ashlar to Infinity This episode is part of a longer series that will continue on Media Roots Radio. And if you'd like to hear the rest of this episode, you can do so by becoming a $5 Patreon subscriber of ours at patreon.com slash Radio. This gives you instant access to the now 30-hour-long series that you were just listening to a clip from. Thanks for listening and take care.